Are you a Dragon Boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Water Sports makes high-performance, lightweight, carbon-fiber Dragon Boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the Dragon Boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape, and more. Visit their website at hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK. Strokeside Designs is a New York-based fine jewelry company focused on water sports. This is the best jewelry I have found through many years of searching. I love my Dragon Boat Paddle Heart earrings and my pendant. The jewelers at Strokeside Designs have worked for famous jewelry houses such as Tiffany & Company and Cartier. All of the pieces are hand-finished from fine materials. Express your passion for kayaking, canoeing, and dragon boating. Visit PaddleJewelry.com and get free shipping with the code PINK. That is PaddleJewelry.com and enter the code PINK. I want to give a huge shout out to all of my podcast listeners. My podcast ranked in the top 200 in the category of science. I ranked at 51 in the United States and number 73 globally. I just have to say that I have so much love in my heart and gratitude for all of you for making this a reality for me. My guest on this episode is licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Catalina Lawson. We dove into the one topic that everyone and no one wants to talk about, sex. Dr. Catalina shares her research and experience working with individuals impacted by things such as cancer. She believes that relationships are the core to who we are and how we experience life, and that sexuality is truly our life force. We dive into some of the complications experienced by cancer survivors with sexual function and intimacy, and even ways to ever overcome those issues so that we can create healthier relationships and have more sex. Let's talk about sex. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Dr. Catalina Lawson. She is a licensed, licensed clinical psychologist who has worked the last 20 years as a clinician, professor, and researcher specializing in psycho-oncology. Over the last decade, her research and clinical work has focused specifically on addressing sexual concerns after cancer. She has led multidisciplinary teams in the U.S. and Australia to develop psychosexual interventions for cancer survivors and their partners that have been tested and implemented within cancer centers and support organizations. Dr. Lawson provides individual and couples therapy in her private practice in Beverly Hills, as well as online for individuals living throughout California, New York, and Illinois to address those psychosexual and relationship concerns within the context of complex traumas, including chronic illness, addiction, divorce, and recurrent abuse. Well, hello. Hi. Thanks (laughs) for having me. Yes. Welcome to the podcast. And I um, apologize for my little stumbles over there on the psychosexual um, repeatedly. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. It's a bit of a tongue twister. It is. It is. (laughs) So um, I'm really glad to have you on here um, to really talk about these concerns, though, because I feel like there are many things within the cancer world that I think get left out of the conversation. Um, One of them is sex. And um, the impacts of cancer treatments and all of that on relationships. And um, so I'm really just kind of fascinated to talk with you a little bit about this. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that I, I guess what brought me really into this work is, is that over time, the, when faced with these existential crises, I guess I saw it just became very clear in both my research and in my clinical work how much it all comes down to relationships and the type of support that 
individuals impacted by cancer need are more emotional. You know, of course, the medicine and the treatments and all of that has gone such a long way. But outside of that, you know, most cancer patients, yes, of course, they're worried about financial concerns. But at the end of the day, our relationships and how we connect with others and ourselves that's that's really what makes life worth living. And so that's kind of what's led me to really focus more on relationships and sexual intimacy and connection. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love that. And the fact that you've been doing this for 20 years is amazing. Um, you know, because it, so I'm a person that I've had a bilateral mastectomy, I've had a hysterectomy mm-hmm. and an oophorectomy. Um, so basically the things that, you know, are a part of intimacy. Yeah. Are kind of broken to say, you know, to to kind of put that one way. But, you know, and it it really does create a lot of issues. So it's it's interesting to me that even throughout my cancer treatments and I was single when I went through the breast cancer surgeries. Nobody ever had this con- like nobody was talking about this stuff. Nobody was talking to me about, you know, this is what you might experience when you meet somebody and, you know, how do we work through those things? So, you know, I'm kind of interested to hear from you in terms of, you know, what are some of the things that people struggle with that you have seen? Um, You know, I'd like to hear a little bit about the research that you've done and then anything in terms of recommendations or suggestions. Well, hundred percent. I mean, I think one, first off, the big thing that what your experience highlighted was, how there's such a gap between what the support, psychosexual support patients and their partners get versus what doctors and oncologists and your team will actually talk to you about. So the majority of cancer patients, this isn't brought up. I mean, particularly when you are talking about cancers that like the parts that you were talking about, physically, of course, you're going to have some sexual changes, but it's also, you mentioned a lot of the parts that are part of our femininity, right. part of our womanhood. And so as far as psychosocial things that are going to come up, certainly function is function and particularly painful sex um, for women is and lubrication. Those are some of the most, the most prevalent physical sexual concerns that come up after cancer. Um, and really that's a dynamic process as far as, what you find is particularly the lubrication when women experience vaginal dryness, everything, you know, the vagina shortens, it, um, it narrows and it tightens. And so, you know, many patients experience problems, even just inserting a tampon if they were, um, if they oh, yeah, were premenopausal, right. you know, exactly. Um, but, but then even, Outside of that, even if you have had, you know, certain various parts removed and things like that too, and you're permanently in menopause, even I've had some patients say that it's hard for them to walk, that they're feeling so dry and, and then let alone having any type of internal exam, that's just utter pain. So as you can imagine, what ends up happening is, is that women who experience this symptom are going to then become a bit aversive and avoidant of any type of sexual activity. And again, this is even before intercourse. (laughs) Yeah. And it is not fun. And I will, you know, um, hopefully my parents are not listening to this episode. (laughs) Um, You know, but I'm going to very honestly tell you that I struggle significantly with that. And it is almost like somebody is taking little shards of, um, glass and just Mm. poking in every single direction. Um, It is the most painful experience um, ever. I mean, I I really can't even describe it. And, and it's not enjoyable. You know, it's no, I don't want to do that because it hurts like hell. Absolutely. Well, and then, and so what did you find out, find yourself doing? I mean, first off, were you like, were you pretty open and enthusiastic to get back in the game? I mean, um, I was. And really, yeah. a lot of it was because, you know, I again, I was single when I was diagnosed and I had the mm-hmm. mastectomy. And, you know, so I, I had met my soon-to-be husband um, when I didn't have any breasts. Um, you know, I had implants. And we knew I was very upfront with him and told him that eventually, you know, I would be having the surgery to remove, um, you know, 
the rest of my girly parts. And, Mm -hmm. you know, but I, I, you know, was excited to get back in the game. Um, There are still things that in terms of losing my breasts, you know, that still impacted, um, you know, my willingness to be open. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a period of time where, you know, I was okay. I will tell you that the tamoxifen that I took also created some issues. uh, Absolutely. As well. But then when I went into full blown menopause, I mean, it was just, it was unbearable. Yeah. Completely unbearable. Well, and that's the thing is, is that it, it's interesting, first off, because it doesn't sound like that many people really did prepare you for more the, no. the actual adjustment <laughs> of what the reality would look like. No. And so <laughs> on top all. of it, so you have just the physical pain of it, but then on top of it, it is an emotional adjustment and a bit of an immediate trauma that you got to grieve. And so what you end up seeing is, is that what our bodies tense up and tighten up even more so when we become scared or when we feel threatened or, or overwhelmed. And so unfortunately what you end up seeing with women is, is that they become more, the pain gets exacerbated. They become more anxious. And next thing you know, they just become avoidant. And the number of cancer survivors that I've met who are like, it's been eight, 12 years since I've had any intimacy, you know, and then partners saying, you know, because then the good partners, particularly amongst breast cancer patients, um, where the supportive partners don't want to, you know, put any pressure. So they don't bring it up either. You know, no one, no one ends up talking about it. And then next thing you know, time just goes by and your body gets accustomed to just being disconnected to just not even addressing that. And, and that's where, that's, I guess, the biggest reason why I got into this is, is because yes, it is absolutely painful, but there are things that we can do to actually begin to gradually get, get the sexual function. You know, there's a lot of things we can do to address function, but then really begin to integrate the cancer experience into an individual's sense of self, um, but also really how they not heighten their awareness to what is happening with their body, what has changed and how they see their body differently and then choosing how they actually want to connect with it. You know, I think that that's so much of when we think about cancer survivorship, this part of the journey, which is the never ending part, really my focus has always been about integration, you know, and now choosing and knowing that your choices can constantly evolve how you want to live day in and day out, you know, and I think sexuality really is at the core of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, and I hear it a lot too. I mean, it's, it's one of those conversations where I've, I've had it with certain people, but not many. Uh, and uh-huh. it's kind of the same thing. You know, I hear a lot of people that, you know, they have really supportive partners and so their partners yeah. do not pressure them, you know, but they know that the intimacy is lacking, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's one of those things where, you know, it's, I've tried this or I've tried that, or, you know, I, I've done the things that I think that I can do and nothing is still working. And so, yeah, you know, exactly what you said. It's been eight, 10, 12 years for some people that I've talked to that, you know, they're really just struggling. So one of the things I don't want to leave out of this, um, you know, obviously the, the podcast is focused on breast cancer and more women are impacted by breast cancer. However, I certainly don't want to exclude men in this conversation because, you know, it's still... I would still imagine that there's probably some issues that they experience as well. Um, oh, hundred percent. I mean, yeah. what, I guess one thing to really point out is, is that, um, and a lot of this research does come from breast cancer survivors, but what you see is, is that partners um, experience as much, if not more distress than cancer patients themselves during treatment. And oftentimes that's because one you know, particularly amongst men, they're generally working as well, being the primary caregiver, the supportive ones are going to all the doctor's appointments. If there's kids at home, they're managing them as well, except that no one checks in on them. Right. You know, you know, particularly for, I mean, when you're getting chemo infusion nurses, it's like, they're all just super 
ridiculously nice and warm and caring and somewhat bubbly, quite honestly. <laughs> um, and and you have, have <laughs> I know, right? And you, so you have this constant support throughout treatment. You know, everyone is asking you, how are you? How are you? What can I do for you? Except rarely anyone asks the guys and, right. and men are flat out socialized to, to think, oh, let's, I got to keep it together. I got to keep it together. And so going back to what you're talking about, men certainly report decreased sexual satisfaction, disconnection with themselves, and they're fatigued, you know? Right. I mean, so it becomes this dynamic where cancer patients and survivors may feel, oh gosh, my part, you know, they're already feeling maybe a bit more insecure about their body and not accustomed to it yet. And then, and then feeling maybe unwanted by their partner who won't pursue them for whether it's because they're fatigued or because they don't want to pressure or because they're just, they have no libido either. Right. You know, I mean, and so it becomes this dynamic that bounces off, but most people never stop and talk about it. And so next thing you know, it does time just goes on and partners too. I mean, the number of partners, because when it comes to men, the one thing that my research has shown is a lot of the partners are coming, but they're not necessarily telling their wives about it. Um, they kind of want to see, they see this as a problem that they want to fix. Right. You know? I, well, um, I think that's the male, um, you know, I think that's mentality. Yeah. Right? Like they exactly. just are, they're fixers. That's really all that it is. <laughs> um, yeah. But I'm also thinking about like male cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would think that they are, they also have some impact um, as well in terms of psychosexual issues. Absolutely. I mean, I think with the male cancer survivors, certainly establishing and maintaining erections are at the forefront. But one of the things, particularly with our prostate cancer survivors, one thing most urologists never tell them about is, is that they may experience dry ejaculate. That's one of those things that men and, and their partners are very surprised when that happens, meaning that they'll experience an orgasm, but they won't ejaculate. Right. And we have to think about, just like lubrication for women, when a man ejaculates, that's actually visual feedback, right? It's feedback to the man of, oh, okay, something, you know, this is what I'm expecting. And then for a woman as well, you know, um, of, of a sense of completion. And a lot of men, I mean, inherent in, in not having that, it shifts their experience of an orgasm. It's not as powerful. It ends up them focusing on actually what's happening rather than how the, what the sensations are and what's, what the feeling is. And so certainly with men, they have issues as well. Again, keeping in mind that this is already exacerbating any just developmental, you know, as we age, our sexuality changes as well. And so all of these sexual changes generally are coming on very abruptly. Right. Um, and so there isn't necessarily gradual acclimation to it, whereas you would see in normal aging. Um, and so it's certainly, and with men, I mean, for them, it's very hard because the first thing doctors are going to give them is mostly like Cialis or Viagra. And once there becomes a psychological component to it where they feel less masculine or they feel pressure or they're feeling shamed or embarrassed, that's when those medications just don't work as effectively, right? And their head's just not in the game. So certainly these sexual changes are going to happen um, to everyone at some point in our life. And in the cancer context, it's just, it's just so abrupt. It is. And, and nobody <laughs> prepares patients for it. They don't. They really don't. Um, it was not any part of the conversation, you know, from the breast cancer to having the, the whole, the full hysterectomy, ovarectomy, nobody yeah. sat down and had that conversation with me. You know, I just knew that I was going to go into medical menopause. I knew I wasn't going to have my breasts. I knew I wasn't going to mm -hmm. have my nipples. Like I knew those things were going to be missing. You know, the, yeah. those would be absent, but nobody really prepared me for, this is what's going to happen when you, you know, start having sex again. This is, you know, nobody, nobody had that conversation. Yeah. Well, and I do think that like this, I mean, particularly not only are the conversations not being had, but even from, even from like 
rehabilitate, like getting accustomed to, to reconstruction. And so many of my breast cancer patients will be very hesitant to ever touch their own breasts. Yeah. You know, they'll put their bras on, but they're, I'm like, so how's it been feeling? And they're like, I'm not going there. <laughs> and that's, that's the part that I hate yes. is, is that my gosh, now you actually even got to pick out your breasts and you don't want to go anywhere near them, let alone let anyone else. Right. Right. And it's, it's, that's the part that really, I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You know? Well, and I will tell you that for a very, very long time, when I would change in the bathroom, um, you know, getting out of the shower in my bathroom at the time I was living in an apartment, so it was pretty small. And there was a huge mirror. And the only space where I would not be able to see myself is if I stood really close to the shower. But every single time that I would get out of the shower, I would never unrobe in front of the mirror because I never wanted to see them. Like they were always (laughs) hidden. Um, And I just kind of felt like if they were hidden, then I didn't have to accept what they were. Yeah. Um, You know, and it took a very, very, very long time for me to show my husband. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I know that that right there has probably just (laughs) just normalized it for so many people listening because it is so common, you know, I mean, like the number of women who, I mean, and and a lot of my interventions, one of the things that we speak to is, okay, using different sexual positions, meeting your, your body where it's at, you know, because it is just so common that let alone you're wanting to see them. You're not wanting your partner to see them and, and, and touch them. And so, again, that leads to just, okay, nothing, you know, it goes, because our our minds want to go to the extremes of, okay, if it can't be all, everything it was, then it can't be anything, you know, and that's where, and, and that it's just doing that to protect itself because it's been, it's so abrupt. And that's one thing I guess I feel like it's just so unfortunate that in general, when we think about cancer, how little the actual psychosocial component of it and how much that changed because at the beginning, you you remember, I'm sure, once you're diagnosed, gosh, everything happens so quickly. You're just trying to keep keep it together, right? It. Like you're just trying <laughs> to get there. So there's no, there's not a lot of space. No. But once you actually get into your routine of chemo, one of the things that I do have some patients, I mean, and I'm not I'm I am gonna acknowledge they're the anomaly, but um, we've had some patients say, gosh, sex is actually the one thing that makes me feel human still during treatment. Good for you know? them. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they're like, like, and I'm okay with it. Anything to distract me, you know, yeah. and, and it actually roots them. And I'm like, high five. That's great. You know, like, I think that's great if you are able to do that. And then again, and this is really where I see it as, because certainly there's a lot of, there's a lot of myths out there when it comes to cancer and a lot of people thinking, Oh, I can't, if I'm in radiation, I can't have it. Or if I'm getting chemotherapy, it's going to be toxic for my partner to touch me. I mean, those are real myths that we have seen and that like, Oh, they can't use the same toilet as me, you know, where there's a lot of stigma attached to your body as being toxic. And this is universal. And you would actually be surprised at how many people have these, have a lot of these beliefs in their head. That's crazy. And so <laughs> I've never, I've never, I've never heard of that. So for me, it's surprising that somebody would even think that way. I know. But okay. I know. Well, and I, I mean, even after reconstruction, the number, like I've had cancer, breast cancer patients think, oh my gosh, something's going to pop. And they literally yes. have that visual <laughs> in their head. It is and I'm kind like, of I don't a disturbing know what kind pop. of sex you're having. <laughs> yeah. <But> like, <laughs> I mean, that visualization is very, very disturbing. It is. Um, I know. Thinking about, you know, it, something might pop. <laughs> and then all of a sudden well, you're like. Right. Well, and then people who have had like orectomies, you know, like kind of just feeling this gap there when, you know, because when we think about it as women, we really don't know what's going on in there. No, you, know? <laughs> you can't see in there. <laughs> and then next thing you know, and it's not a long surgery. And so women will come out thinking, okay, I know that a big part of why I'm, I mean, 
our life cycle just got taken out, right? But how big is it? What happened? But just feeling this gap and not really. And again, that's where some of the visuals come in for, for the patients I've worked with of, okay, well, what happens? And what happens when I have intercourse? Now that these parts are gone, you know, these are, these are the things where, again, in our, whether it be in our research or in my clinical work that you see happening that I guess a lot of my, what my interventions did were, were really get, um, I've used a lot of cancer survivors to share their stories and then we put our data behind it and we really try to heighten awareness of the common place of a lot of these thoughts and concerns so that we can then just break down some of the myths and then actually address with some concrete strategies that we know, because we know that sexual changes are going to happen. Um, and that it really is across all of the cancers, but particularly for your, your cancers that are affecting, you know, your sexual parts. Right. And, um, you're, that's where you're going to see most of the dysfunction as far as, as far as physical changes, but across everyone, cancer shifts how, how you see your body, how you see, how you connect with it. I mean, cancer for a lot of people, you know, their body failed them. And I think that that's where, when we think about sexuality, so much of it is, is connecting and trusting our body. Right. And that's where I feel like cancer attacks that. And, um, and, and so it's working with patients to reconnect with that and, and again, build it their, their way, you know, because I do think that particularly around our sexuality is so much shame already, right. you know, and, and being able to even just acknowledge some of these, so many, so many cancer survivors feel like, oh my gosh, and now this too. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I, I know it, I live it. <laughs> um, it's just the truth. So, yeah. you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, I definitely want to talk about some of those interventions and different strategies uh, that you kind of referenced at the beginning, but it really sounds like the first place to start is communication. Yeah, you know, communication definitely is, is key. And when you look at, any type of couples therapy. I mean, so much of, of why communication actually is key is, is that when we're talking about these physical changes and those triggers that we were mentioning earlier on, one thing we got to know is, is that it does not take very long for our bodies to just get conditioned to that process. Meaning if, if there is a relationship where you you know you're approached by your partner and you immediately um, get triggered, and feel pain, you're going to withdraw. That process takes two to three weeks to become chronic, you know, to become a habit. And so one of the things that we have to remember is, is that, okay, we first have to acknowledge that. And then we actually need to begin to heighten our awareness so we can catch it and then assert it, you know, explain to our partners what's happening really without even necessarily saying what, what to fix it. But one of the things I like in communication too, and I think cancer survivors, you know, one of the biggest things when someone gets diagnosed with cancer that I feel like pretty much every cancer patient I've heard is that gets sick of is, is when people say, Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Or, you know, I mean, is it that fair? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. Me too. (laughs) I know. Like, Thanks. Um, so, but so when it comes to sex, um, what it really gives us and why communication is important is it gives us an opportunity to actually say what it is might help you, you know, like, um, just like in those cases where a lot of people, it's because people don't know what to say, you know, particularly in your case, you were younger. So people are not expecting you to have cancer. No. So they're like, Oh shit. I don't, you know, so in this case, it's the same thing. And particularly with people we are in relationships with where it's a one starting off of saying, you know, I know this is happening. I don't know what I need either. Um, but hang with me, you know, and, and, and don't worry, we'll figure this out together to then when you're, you know, you're actually working on it, figuring out, 
oh, this feels, I like how this feels. Oh, this feels uncomfortable or that's tinging right there or that's painful. You know, that's where like on a concrete way, communication helps as far as just giving, giving guidance and, and asserting and owning it. But all of that's well and good. But again, it's getting to that step. And one of the things we know about, um, about couples having cancer is, is that it's, is that communication's already hard in most relationships, right? (laughs) Um, And it's not like there need to be toxic for them to, to, for there to need, everyone needs some communication help, right? But then in the midst of cancer, right when that happens, there's also, it's almost like in most couples, the rules have changed. Um, You know, it, it immediately is learning what, what can and cannot be talked about. And I guess that's where you typically see a little bit more, if there has been a fork in the road, then that just extrapolates on where they'll just be, okay, I don't want to bring this up. So even before you can get to disclosing, it is just starting off with even just the emotional part, the acknowledging and having a safe space where you feel like you can actually just open up of saying, I'm just not feeling the same. I'm not feeling, I'm not at all feeling sexy. I don't find myself at all attractive. I can't look at myself, yeah. you know, way before have it being able to, fe- to feel safe with those words. And this is where I really do think that cancer survivors need to, and, and all patients, but, but where we need to start those conversations with ourselves and we need to practice because the thing is, is that our body doesn't sometimes want to give voice to that, you know? I mean, and it's protecting us if it hasn't already, you know, and that's, I think one of the things to keep in mind throughout this is, is that immediately our body goes into protection mode. Cancer itself is a threat that all of your energy in your body has to go to attend to, you know, so it doesn't have a great reservoir, um, to actually muster up, you know, um, the resources to actually, have those conversations because our body, when it's protecting itself, it's going to prioritize things. So if you're not accustomed to having open communication and, and asserting your feelings first, that's where I think it's really hard for couples to actually have a lot of those conversations, but they're absolutely key because, because it's going to be evolving. You know, your bodies are going to be evolving and you're, you're going to have to work it out together what feels good and, and make that safe. I mean, sex is, sex is fun when it's safe, right? Like (laughs) that's, that's like when, like in, in, you know, even when you're thinking about ropes and stuff, I mean, you hope the ropes work. (laughs) (laughs) Fair point. Fair point. Yes. (laughs) Right. I mean, and so I think that that's where so much of when we think about communication, it all comes down to, yes, there's absolutely use I statements, be clear, but first and foremost, to get your voice, you have to acknowledge where you're at. And I think that that's where we have to really be gentle with. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, I I think it's, you know, it starts with ourselves first, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and then branches out from there to, you know, being able to communicate that to your partner. So, you know, I, I think, for some, like me, you know, I I had a period of time for an adjustment, um, you know, before my husband came in. But at the same time, I was still not ready. And that was, yeah. I want to say it was two years from my mastectomy that I had met him. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, it, it still took some time. Um, but I... I think I would have preferred it to be that way rather than having to go home to a partner. Like, I don't mm. know, I don't know how that would have worked out. Like, I, I, I think I would have struggled with that significantly. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's the thing. I mean, it's definitely a lot of my coupled patients, particularly again, amongst younger, younger cancer patients. It is just, it is hard to go. I mean, and then when you think about, couples who've been together for 20, 30 years. I mean, when it comes to sex, I mean, that's kind of like clockwork, right? right? Like (laughs) most couples aren't going in for tune-ups and saying, Hey, (laughs) let's change this up, you know? And I think that that's something to really appreciate is that 
you know, because I do think that on the other side of like, you can talk to people and people will say, oh yes, you can get your sexual, you know, you can have a great sex life after cancer. I'm like, let's just slow our roll here and keep expectations real. Most people are not used to having to do much at all fixing or shifting when it comes to sex, because again, it's like everyone does get into their routine. Yeah. You know, and so having to navigate it and actually say, whoa, this position that we've been doing for 15 years is a no go. <laughs> right. You know, um, I think that that's something where that's really, really confronting, you know, and our bodies are not used to doing. Yeah. I mean, I like I said, I honestly I can't imagine I had time. Um, yeah. You know, to to kind of process and, and figure some things out. And, you know, at that point, I, you know things were still there um, when we first met. So I was good. It was really, you know, after the surgery that, that things kind of shifted. Well, and I have to say kudos for you because one of the biggest things that I've spoken to is also dating after cancer. And then oh, even my gosh. <laughs> like, do you disclose? When do you disclose? Like, is this a good litmus of, you know, I mean, there's so many things that come up. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. I mean, I was just, truthfully, the way that it happened for me was very easy. I was doing a cancer fundraising event he was with a friend and the friend was a part of the fundraising event and we just started talking and, you know, so he was asking how I was involved and it really just kind of came up through that. And I just, you know, I had no idea. I wasn't even looking for somebody. So I didn't realize that this was going to go anywhere and Mm -hmm. I just laid it all out on the table. So I had no concerns. Yeah. So it still worked out in my favor. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, dating dating after cancer is a whole other topic that I think we could definitely do another podcast on. <laughs> I, know. Really, I agree. Genuinely. I mean, and I, I do think that like, I think, and again, that is across the lifespan. I mean, I had a, another breast cancer patient who she was like, <laughs> she was 67 and she'd been divorced for 12 years and, um, and, and hadn't been touched in that time. And next thing you know, I mean, so we spent a year getting her online and open and connecting with her body. And next thing you know, she was in a, in a relationship, basically living with a guy, Wow, you know, for her, like, so it's, I mean, so that fear is across, you know, across the decades of, oh my gosh, dating. I mean, cause the reality is dating sucks, period. Yes. For, for, <laughs> Amen. <you know? laughs> so I think that like, I think that that's one of the things and then cancer bringing that into it just, ugh, right. again, it's just another thing. And that's, I feel like where particularly right now with, with the COVID um, crisis, it's like, gosh, and then another thing. And that sense of these things being done to us, you know, this is where I feel like any way and inherent in our sexuality, anything that we can control and that we can can grab onto and harness and fuel us, that's our sexuality. Right. You know? Yeah. And that's where I guess I feel like, gosh, life is hard. Oh, <laughs> it know? is. It There's is. so many uncertain and, and unpredictable things that, gosh, if, if there is, if we can hold on to this, then then that's really at the testament. And that when I say that this, that really is our self connection to ourselves and our connections to others Our main, I really do see our sexuality as our life force as our, as our center, the way we really do connect with ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Well, and I was going to say too, I think, you know, it has to be really hard to date this day and age because at this point, Everybody just wants to Netflix and chill, and we know what that means. So, <laughs> you know, you don't really go into a, something like that when you've had cancer and, you know, like, oh, hey, by the way, you know, I know that I just met you or whatever. Um, yeah, again, I feel like that could be an entire podcast um, yeah. after cancer. So we might have to chat about that. <laughs> okay, sounds um, great. So I'm thinking about you know, in terms of like the, the physical pain, right. You know, again, that's very much a, a thing that, you know, nobody wants to, well, I I shouldn't say nobody. Um, many people are not interested in having that level of pain in that area, um, when they're having intercourse. And so 
what are some things that, you know, you have to offer in terms of helping, you know, I know that lubrication, those kind of things, but is there anything, any tools or anything that you have to offer that might be helpful for anybody that's suffering with that? Absolutely. I mean, first off, there's, I mean, lubrications, um, lubricants are great for on the spot, but before, you know, right when you're about to engage in any type of sexual activity, um, but along the way, using moisturizers, vaginal moisturizers, um, like Replens, that, that those are actually highly effective to really regulate the um, pH levels and bring natural lubrication back. The thing with that is, is that it's, it has to be done repetitively, you know, and the chronicity of that is where, you know, you just find a lot of women just don't want to engage in that. Sure. But once doing that, that's really where, you know, particularly I encourage women, particularly after, um, after chemotherapy, after, and if they've had any type of radiation as well, but to begin to use vaginal dilators and really begin to actually use the vaginal dilators to not only stretch and strengthen the vaginal area, um, but also use that as a process to reconnect with your vaginal area. You know, I mean, let's keep it real. Like most women, we use tampons, but again, we go to the gynae. We don't think about what's going on there. Most women have no idea, like myself included before I got into this work. It's not like I'm like, oh, I know all about my vagina, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so, but really using um, while you're actually rehabilitating almost, I mean, that's how we should see it is um, our vaginas and stretching it and using lubes and using the dilators using this and going slowly and taking it as a time to actually reconnect with that area or connect for the first time, you know? And, um, and so that's definitely something that I recommend women to do on their own before they get into any activity with someone else. Because again, that's where you can breathe through and you can ground so that your body becomes conditioned. Cause it's not like it's gonna, it's like any kind of workout or training, you're going to feel some pain. And then it's, it's building your tolerance and then doing the exercises while you're stretching and then connecting your ability to move through that any type of pain or that you may be experiencing so that over time, your experience of the pain will shift, the actual function like, and your elasticity will probably will improve as well. And along the time you've built up your comfort and, and, and trust again in connecting with yourself. And then you can also tell your partner, okay, this is what works best, you know, cause then you can, you know, you can use the dilators, but then you can also begin to use different toys. Use, this is a time where you figure out which lubes you do like, which positions using pillows. That's where physically, when we're talking about those shifts, I always recommend women and men to do a lot of this homework on your own and explore where you don't feel the pressure that someone else is there. Play some good music. Again, use the things that like you do on date night for your partner to warm things up. Do that for yourself. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I am a big believer of making a sex um, playlist because again, bounce, that's bounce, what bounce, relaxes bounce. us. Just kidding. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And actually building the rhythm. You know, yeah. when we talk about men, um, actually, you know, I'm like, okay, you want to last two or three songs, you know, like, like actually getting them to relax into it, but then building that, right. right? Build, building that resilience and the same thing with women. And so I really do. I mean, I say Sunday fun day, you know, get out and, and actually use this as an opportunity to explore and taking your time. Like when it comes to the vaginal dilators, I tell some women, don't even think about putting putting it in. And literally the first one, the first dilator size, it's like those Russian dolls. It's like a, <laughs> yeah, it's like a pinky. <laughs> exactly. And so, but do you know, some women can't do that. Oh, yeah. So I tell them, I'm like, it's okay. Then knock on the door. Just get your, get your vagina ready. So it begins to trust that pinky, you know, like, and, and again, taking it however slow, that's the beauty with, um, self-pleasure and, and doing things on our own is 
we absolutely get to call the shots, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And so one of the other things, and I, I don't know, so I'll ask you this question, is um, like the Kegel weights. Yes. Um, you know, just to kind of strengthen that pelvic floor, 100%. I would think would be good. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, definitely, I don't recommend... For cancer survivors, if there already has, particularly for incontinence um, as well, because that's another fear that a lot of women experience. Um, And so once we get into that stuff, first and foremost, I always recommend women to go to a physical therapist that Mm -hmm. specializes in pelvic pain. And and now there's more of them, you know, um, to really, first and foremost, get assessed. You know, because the other thing is, is that a lot of women, if they've already had kids, maybe this is something that they didn't even notice, you know, um, like or give much mind to, you know. And so also getting figuring out, okay, what's going on here? What what needs to be improved and doing it in again in that gradual way, Um, because the beauty of working with a physical therapist is, is that it really is. The idea is you're going to have to push yourself just a little bit each time right? Like you're going to, and again, building up that trust. And so it's just another, um, another support area to actually do some of that work. Um, where you also in doing it with a physical therapist, you know, again, that's expanding on doing these things on your own, but then also you get to practice just like in psychotherapy, right? You have another person to practice and talk about these things that you can then bring some of those actions and conversations into your relationship. Right. Yeah. And I love that. And, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, I hate to kind of keep bringing it back to the same issue, but there's that gap of information. You know, I didn't even know that there were physical therapists who specialized in pelvic floor therapy. Um, You know, I just thought, well, this is what it is and I've got to figure this out on my own. And that's basically what I did. Yep. Well, and, and, and I mean, and let's just be honest though, too, when we think of kegels, we don't think men do it, but men absolutely should (laughs) do it. And (laughs) like men should actually do it even more so than women. Like, you know, and so, but again, so you're right. It's such a lack of information. And, and I really feel like, so a lot of what I've done is train oncologists and train nurses to just in giving, giving some of these information. And because the number one thing my research showed is, is that if you ask how sexually satisfied are you, that one question immediately will open the door to more, a more holistic and efficient assessment. But because it is, it is attached to so many things. It's going to be attached to your pain, to your sleep, to, to your appetite, to so much of your function, to your lethargy, right? Your right. energy levels, all of those things. But then you've also normalized from the get-go. How are you connecting? Yeah. You know, what, what are your relationships like? Nobody's um, asking that question. <laughs> no. At least not 13 years ago. <laughs> Nobody no, asked that question. <laughs> like that's, and that's a lot of my mission is, is to go in and train more clinicians yes. so that we have these conversations because we know literally right when you have them, right when you just say, say sex. I mean, that's the beauty of that word, right? Right when you say it, oh, people are like, oh, we can talk about sex now. Right. Yeah. Like just open the door. Like just, just let's talk about sex. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, and it really is just just like that. That's what I love about that word is, is right when you say it, people are like, oh, cool. We can do that here. You know? And if you have doctors doing that, there you go. You've changed the culture. You've made it safe. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is just just know that it's a safe space to have that conversation. And we are genuinely interested. You know, they're interested in my pain here and they're interested in my pain there. And, you know, they want to talk about this and if I have a good appetite and, you know, am I being abused at home? And, you know, all of those questions are being asked, but nobody has ever said, how satisfied are you with your sexual life? None. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I guess I feel like that, that one question opens so many doors and, and I guess, you know, one thing though, that we have to, you know, I, I, on the patient side, it's so frustrating. And I hear that. And on the provider side, the main reason they don't want to do 
this is one embarrassment, but then two, they don't know what to advise. And that's not because they are crap doctors. Obviously that's not the case. It's that they weren't trained, Exactly. you know? And so no doctor wants to ask a question where they don't have the answer. Right. So one of the things I also recommend to patients is, okay, you bring it up, say, I have, I'm having pain even just when I'm, you know, when I'm walking even, and I can't even think about sex right now. Um, who can I talk to? Like, yeah, right. you know, if you particularly, I mean, if people think, and I, this is where I do feel like, you know, amidst cancer survivors, there has been more empowering and needing to advocate for yourself. This is definitely one of those areas where I just tell patients, Okay, just tell them I'm having pain. I'm having vaginal pain. Who can I talk to? And that's it. You know, yeah. assuming assuming the doctor doesn't want to talk about it, who their main job is to refer you then. Yeah, it, I mean, <laughs> at least it opens the door. It's not exactly. something that you have to suffer through silently. Absolutely. And that's the number one thing. And again, seeing it as bring it up to anyone. The reason, I mean, a lot of my um, prior stuff focused on nurses because in cancer um, treatment, it's nurses who patients most are closest to, right? You see them the most and you can find in them the most. And so I say, ask them. Like one, they're mostly chicks and most of them are like just so freaking loving, you know, and just ask them, who should you talk to? And, and know that it may not be at your cancer center. May know that it may be somebody that Okay. And and particularly if you're living in a smaller city, you know, a lot of these things, they, they just, there hasn't, there aren't enough providers. Like I was, um, I used to be a professor at, um, in Sydney at university of Sydney and Sydney was the main city of Australia, but there wasn't a lot of people of physicians who addressed this, let alone pelvic floor, um, PTs, you know? And so knowing that, okay, it might be outside of your treatment center. Um, and that's okay. You know, like, and, but that there's now more and more information. I mean, certainly um, I'm going, I have, I made a website, um, a web-based e-health intervention called Rekindle when I was out in Australia. And that was basically translating sex therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy to basically do a self-led treatment for cancer survivors and their partners. So we put that out in about 35 different cancer centers in um, Australia. And then from that work in America here, I've made an app called Aviva for Latina um, breast and gynae cancer survivors, where it's, this is a pilot study where it's basically an abbreviated version. Um, and really just trying to heighten awareness and give some immediate concrete strategies to Latina cancer survivors. And then in my own work, I'm actually making, making more online courses because one of the things that Rekindle showed us was that doing this work on your own, one of the things we found is, is that if patients came into the study where they were highly anxious, unfortunately, in getting some of the information, you see this with across a lot of interventions, it actually heightens their anxiety. And, but the anxiety itself isn't, isn't addressed. And so this is where my work as a clinician, I'm going to be very much more mindful that like I have these courses that I'm going to be giving, but if I don't think anybody, I don't want someone's distress to be to get worse. That means that you can't necessarily, you have to have some tools first to manage that before you actually, or congruently while that, remember how I was saying earlier, do this gradually, do this gradually. You've got to build up that trust because again, your body naturally has been protecting itself. So, and that's, I think when we talk about a lot of these self-led interventions, that's where we have to really watch out for our pacing and our tailoring. And so that's in my, in my, now my work in my private practice, that's where I'm trying to offer is figure out a way that you can actually do a bit more one-on-one tailoring, um, to give that support. So, because I do think that a lot of the sexual concerns once they've really, once you go about a year or two years out where the physical changes have kind of set themselves in, the psychological changes are the ones that you're really having to manage. 
Absolutely. You know, um, yeah. and manage those before you can actually get into some of the physical because the, the body will just keep on retreating. It'll keep on tensing up. And I think that that's where so much we have to do work on really healing um, psychosocially. Yeah, absolutely. It is a big snowball yeah. <laughs> of things. <laughs> really. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like actually I would maybe equate it to like a blooming onion. Um, just pulling back all those different layers, <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, so thinking about, you know, I, my guess is there's somebody that's listening that's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is me, this is me, and mm-hmm. really is looking for more information. Where can we send them to get some more information from you? And, um, you know, maybe if they want to connect with you to, you know, talk about maybe some sessions online or, you know, whatever it might be, where can we send them? Absolutely. So um, I'm actually building my newer website now, but um, so people can find me at www.theintimacydoc um, and so.com. And they can also find me on Instagram. Uh, I'm, my handle is the intimacy doc. And then I have a podcast I put out every Wednesday called Sex Marks the Spot. And actually, this week, I mean, I know that this will be shown later, but um, I actually have, we'll be talking about painful sex and okay. other strategies that we can do to actually relax that. I'll be talking a lot more about mindfulness um, and and how we can do some self-regulating and grounding strategies. So the best Perfect. way, and then you can always just Google me. I'm pretty Googleable if you just Google Dr. Catalina Lawson. I'm the only Lawson. My family is the only Lawsons in the world. Um, And (laughs) so I'm pretty easy to find. And definitely, I think one of the biggest things that I also, one is, is I hope people do reach out. It most importantly, so that I, I'm really also trying to connect people with local chapters. So like, for instance, I do a lot of work here in LA with cancer support community. And then, um, and then in Chicago, I worked with, um, Gilda's club, which is Chicago's cancer support community. And so the other thing is, is really, um, on my website, I have some resources there as well. And, um, and when I see things like get emails, I also try to put some of those or speak to some of those in my posts. So definitely, um, I think one of the biggest things I want to really provide for people is a space for us to just talk and get real about sex and relationships and how, how hard they are to navigate and how they're constantly changing, you know? So hopefully I'm, um, hopefully like this conversation leads to more conversations and we really just yes. change the conversation. Yeah. And I hope so too. <laughs> I really hope that, you know, people will realize that you're very comfortable to talk to. Um, you know, oh, we kind of had a little bit of a chat beforehand and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not super open about my sex life and, you know, the struggles that I faced, um, you know, but you are very easy to talk to. And so hopefully our listeners can recognize that. And if they are struggling to really reach out and, you know, just find out more information and maybe have a chat with you. But I love the work that you're doing. I think there is absolutely a necessity for it. Um, I feel like we could genuinely talk about this topic because I know that so many people are struggling with it. So we could probably go on forever and ever about it, Um, (laughs) you know, but I, I definitely appreciate the time that you've spent with me today to talk about it. And I do genuinely have an interest in bringing you back to talk about dating um, after cancer. I would love to. And Melissa, I just want to say first off your show, because I've listened to several of your episodes and your they one thank you for trusting me and sharing with me in our chat um your own experience but also really by you speaking up and having this podcast you you are part of the conversations you know you're making the conversations okay to have and so i really i really appreciate that on your side for sure and i don't know how much you get actually get to get props but thank you for all of your work oh my gosh <laughs> i'm like in tears right now thank you so much i appreciate that <laughs> yeah 100% no i mean again i know that i know that you've integrated your experience into your story. And, and I think that that's, um, that's what, that's the best thing we can do with anything that hits us. Right. Absolutely. And, um, and so I really appreciate it because, you know, it, I'm happy it was easy to chat on your side and it was so fun on my side. Good. <laughs> good. Well, I'm sure that our listeners will absolutely love it. 
Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.